I ask that you please then turn with me to the our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. So we'll be looking at chapter 9 in verses 2 to 13. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Brothers and sisters, then, please hear with me the reading of God's Word. And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked Him, Why do the scribes say that First Elijah must come. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Uh, brothers and sisters, last week we took a, a break from Mark's Gospel, and so it's important to go back and revisit what happened just prior to this transfiguration so that we can understand the significance of this event in its context. Right? In the context of this passage is what has occurred just six days prior. In verse 31, Jesus was teaching the disciples what must happen to the Messiah. What must happen to him? What being the Messiah entails? And he says, it entails rejection. And it entails death and then rising on the third day. And what was the apostles' reaction? And Peter specifically. It was to rebuke Jesus. Lord, may it never be. But Peter says that because Peter was afraid. Right? Being a disciple, he himself did not want to suffer rejection and death like His Master was going to. And yet, what does Jesus respond with? Right, He very sternly rebukes Peter, saying that He's doing the work of the devil and trying to prevent the cross, not understanding that the the cross is necessary for sinners to be reconciled to God. This is the, the same cross that Satan tried to get Jesus to abandon when He tempted Him in the wilderness. But the cross is the mission that the Father sent the Son to accomplish. And so Peter inadvertently, also in asking Jesus to abandon the cross, was asking Jesus to disobey His Father and to sin. But Peter was speaking foolishly, 
because he didn't comprehend, he didn't understand the full significance of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. And yet, after this tense encounter, what does Jesus do? Right? He, he gathers the crowds to him. All those who want to follow him. And he says, okay, I'll tell you what it means to come after me. Right? Jesus tells them what it means for him to be a Messiah. And now he tells them what it means to be a disciple of the Messiah. And so he says, essentially what? To come after me means to lose yourself in me. It means to deny yourselves. Even that means denying good and lawful things God has given to you, if Christ so demands it. It means taking up your cross, right? Daily, engaging in spiritual warfare. It means following Christ, right? Following after His pattern in life. You must suffer. You must be obedient. You must fight against sin. You must be willing to die for Christ in the Gospel just as Christ has died for you. And so this joyous moment at first, if you remember, right, just before this, the apostles said finally, correctly, that Jesus was the Christ, right? They, they finally got Jesus correct. They said, you are the Messiah. And yet, what was a joyous occasion right, suddenly turned to sadness once the disciples understood what discipleship involved. And I liken what they were feeling to maybe what, what parents feel as soon as you know, they give birth maybe to a newborn child and they find out something's wrong and the child has to get whisked away. Right? If, if any of you have had that happen to you, you know what I mean. Right? There is this joy, this happiness when a child is born. But then what happens when they, perhaps they find out something is terribly wrong and they, they whisk the child away to surgery? And all of a sudden, that, that joy has turned to sadness and fear has overtaken them, not knowing what's going to happen to them, not knowing how they're going to suffer, not knowing if they're going to live another day. And I imagine that this is just how the apostles were feeling as well. Right? They were joyous. Jesus is our Messiah. We are His disciples. But then that joy turns to sadness and fear once they understand what discipleship entails. Death. And yet, though, these, these sayings of Jesus are, are hard, though, aren't they? Right? They're, his sayings are hard to the disciples. He's saying, whoever will save their life will lose it, yet whoever loses his life will save it. Right? Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of them when I return in glory. And so we can only imagine that the apostles' heads are spinning with what's being said. And yet Jesus, always the kind, caring, loving, compassionate Savior, doesn't just say this to them, kind of drop the bomb and walk away and say, see you later, have fun with it. But rather, He, he tells them, I'm going to confirm to you that I will return again in glory. And this is what we see then in the beginning of chapter 9 and verse 1. When Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This, brothers and sisters, is the background of our text today. As we will see just six days later, he gives to some of them, Peter, James, and John, a foretaste of his final glory and a foretaste of the glory that they shall have with him when he returns. And so we're going to look at our text today unpacking the significance of this event. And we're going to do so then under... Three points, okay? 
So the first point is this, that Jesus was transfigured to show them who He was. Jesus was transfigured to show them who He was. Point two, Jesus was transfigured to show them what they were to be. Jesus was transfigured to show them what they were to be. And then thirdly, Jesus was transfigured to confirm His message and to stir them to faithful obedience. Right? Point three, Jesus was transfigured to confirm His message and stir them to faithful obedience. So, we begin with point one. Jesus was transfigured to show them who He was. And so what are we told? He, he takes the three of them up to this mountain and before them, Jesus is transfigured. Now, it would be nice to know what transfigured meant, wouldn't it be? I mean, the title of the sermon is The Transfiguration. It would be nice to know what being transfigured meant. And so transfigured is a, the Greek word for this means metamorpho. That's the Greek word for transfigured, metamorpho. And when I say metamorpho, what does that sound like to you? I think you all know, right? It's from this Greek word metamorpho that we get the English word metamorphosis. And we all know in school, right, what metamorphosis is, right? We've, we've learned of in, you know, insects going through complete metamorphosis, which means a change in form. And so when we speak about Jesus being transfigured, what we are saying is that His outward form changed. It wasn't that he became something that he was not. But as R.C. Sproul puts it, the glory that was veiled behind the cloak of his humanity burst forth, revealing the deity of Christ. Okay, The glory that was veiled behind the cloak of his humanity burst forth, revealing the deity of Christ. We might think about the transfiguration in this way. Think about it like the sun on a cloudy day. Right, the sun on the cloudy day. You can't see the brightness of the sun because it is hid behind the clouds, right? But what happens when the clouds start to part? All of a sudden, the sun, in the brightness of the sun, you can see as it shines down forth upon you. Now the sun was always there. It just wasn't seen. And the same is true of the divinity of Christ. He remained the same. He didn't stop being deity. But in assuming this human body to Himself, what it did was it hid the brightness of His glory. Okay, Jesus never stopped being God. It wasn't like a a jacket that He took off and placed on the side and put to the side and said, I'll come back for it later because I'm, I'm a human now. He never stopped being deity. This is what Paul tells us, doesn't he? In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the author tells us that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And John tells us, in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now it's also important to understand that in the transfiguration, There was no glory added to Jesus. But rather, it was a a manifestation. It was an unveiling of the glory that He already had, that was already His. And so in the transfiguration, Jesus reveals to these three men His divine glory. And who is it that He is revealing Himself to be? 
right, the eternal Son of God. Right, he's revealing Himself to be the eternal Son of God. And how is the eternal Son of God described? Well, in verse 3 we're told His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. This is to say that Jesus is absolute purity. You could be no more pure, no more, no more perfect. There was no spot, no stain, no wrinkle, no sin. He was the perfect and glorious Son of God. This is who Jesus has revealed Himself to be to Peter, James, and John. In doing so, He is also then confirming their faith. Right? He is saying to them in this transfiguration, you have placed your faith in the right one. Don't fear what man can do to you, for God dwells with you. And yet He is also pledging to them that although He must suffer and die and be raised on the third day, that one day He will come again in glory. Right? The representation of the glory on that mountaintop, it only prefigured the glory that was to come at the second coming. But you see, Jesus understood that the message of suffering was, was going to be hard for the saints. It was going to be crippling for some. And so what does Jesus do here? He braces them by giving them a glimpse of His glory. Do you see how tender-hearted your Savior is? He's saying, although right now I'm in the form of a lowly servant, although I must suffer, and although I must die, do not be ashamed of Me. Do not be ashamed of the cross. Don't be scared. Don't fear. For death will not hold me down. For there will be a day when I return. And I will return in splendor and glory and majesty. But who else does Jesus reveal Himself to be in the transfiguration? Well, look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Okay? Now, if Jesus simply wanted to, to comfort the saints by revealing His glory and identifying himself as the eternal Son of God, then why does he need Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses and Elijah appear in order to confirm to Peter, James, and John not only that he is the eternal Son of God, but that he is also the mediator of the new covenant. Right? They, they are there to affirm and confirm that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And how do we know this? Well, I ask, who does Moses represent? Or what does Moses represent? Moses represents the law. He wrote the law. What does the prophet Elijah represent? He represents the prophets. And so in their appearance before Peter, James, and John, what they are saying is that everything that is written in the law and the Gospels, this man, Jesus Christ, has come to fulfill. That's what they were testifying to when they came. Right? They were affirming the same thing that Jesus says in Luke 24. After his resurrection, when he appears to the disciples, right, he says this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then we're told he opens their minds, he opens the apostles' minds to the Old Testament, and then right after that in verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and die and rise on the third day from the dead. This is what Elijah and Moses have come to declare by their presence. Right? Moses is saying that Christ is that new Passover lamb that must be slaughtered. He's saying, you know, everything I wrote about the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they all typified what Jesus has come to do to be that once and for all sacrifice. 
He is the great High Priest who has come to offer a sacrifice on the altar before Almighty God for your sins. Elijah is there saying everything that the prophets spoke is about Him. And it is true. He's affirming what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. And then in verse 12 of chapter 53, yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is what Elijah is saying. This is true. And this man here has come to fulfill this. And so Jesus in the presence of Moses and Elijah was reaffirming for the saints His mediatorial duty to accomplish all that He was sent as prophet, priest, and king of the new covenant. And yet this wasn't the only purpose that Moses and Elijah served in being there. Right? They also testified by their presence to Peter, James, and John the certainty of the future state of glory for all who are in Christ. Right? They affirmed not only the necessity of Christ's death, but that eternal life is a 100% certainty by their own resurrected and glorified appearance. And so they are revealing to Peter, James, and John something about God as well in this encounter. What are they saying as they stand there? Glorified. They are saying that God is not the God of the dead, but He is the God of the living. That is what they are also revealing to the saints on that mountaintop. And so in the transfiguration, Jesus displayed His glory to comfort the saints, demonstrate to them that He is the eternal Son of God and the mediator of the new covenant. But what we also see in Jesus' transfiguration and in the presence of the glorified bodies of Moses and Elijah was Jesus was revealing to us what we one day shall be. And this takes us then to point number two. In verse four, we're told that when Elijah and Moses appear, they begin speaking with Jesus. And then in verse five, Peter says this, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You see, Jesus allows these three men to see Moses and Elijah to certify to them that if they deny themselves, if they take up their cross, if they follow Him unto death, that this glorified state is what is for them in heaven. That is what Jesus is certifying. Jesus also here is revealing to us that He assumes a body, not only to suffer and die on the cross for us, but He assumes a body for our glorification. This is what Moses and Elijah's glorified bodies represent for us. Right, That if the head of the church is a glorified body, so too will all of its members who are in Him. But what else can we glean from this encounter and the appearance of the, of the glorified Moses and Elijah? How about in this event, Jesus is teaching us and teaching the apostles that in heaven, we will be in the company of the saints forever. He's teaching us that we will know one another that we will see one another, we will recognize one another, and that we will speak with one another. In heaven, brothers and sisters, I want you to know our memory is not removed. Our memory is not replaced. Our memory is perfected. Our memory is perfected. Yet that memory will be one that no longer considers anything that's going on here on earth. Because we will be so caught up in the glory of God. 
Look how Peter reacts when confronted with God's glory. It is good for us to be here. That is what Peter says. Right? Peter was overcome in this moment. And he couldn't think about anything else. Peter even offers to build three tents. Right? One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was ready to stay on that mountaintop in glory with the Lord. Right? In this moment, Peter forgot about everything else on earth. He forgot about his family. He forgot about his friends. He forgot about his troubles. He forgot about his worries because he was so captivated and caught up in the glory of the Lord. And this, brothers and sisters, is how it shall be for every one of us on that great day when we go to be with the Lord. And knowing this, what should it cause each and every one of us to do? Knowing what it is we shall be. It should move your souls to more earnestly labor after that heavenly glory. It should cause you to desire it, to hunger for it, to thirst after it, to want to gain a greater assurance that it's yours and that you have it. This also teaches us that true happiness and real satisfaction is only found in the presence and the enjoyment of God. So stop living your life for this earth. Stop living your life for yourself. Stop living your life to be men-pleasers. Stop trying to avoid suffering for the sake of Christ and the Gospel because you love your life too much now. As we see how much greater heaven is to earth, brothers and sisters, we ought to prefer heaven to earth. Now we see Peter asked if he should build these tents, but he does so both out of excitement and terror. Right? He's terrified at the, the presence of this glory. And yet he asks the Lord and Moses and Elijah to make their heavenly abode an earthly abode. Right? He, he didn't know what he was saying. He spoke out of ignorance. and In haste, he was asking them to leave heaven for earth, not realizing that earth is not our home. We should not long to remain on the earth. We should long to be received up into heaven. This is why we should also strive, brothers and sisters, to grow in faith. Right? When you grow in faith, you receive new life. And then you will yearn for deliverance from this world. Listen to what John Owen said. He said, The nearer we are to heaven and to Christ, the more earnest is your desire to be there, and to be with Christ. The nearer you are to heaven in Christ, the more earnest is your desire to be there and to be with Christ. Now recently I did a, a home visitation and I was speaking to a couple godly saints and they kept saying to me, Pastor, we're ready to be with the Lord today. We're ready to go today. I think they understood something that I think all of us need to better understand. And perhaps that only comes with growth in faith. But that's the nearer you draw to Christ, the more of the, His glory you see. And the more of His glory you see, the more you want to be with Him in that glory. Right? Understanding that here on earth we are incomplete. Right? There's something missing. There's something greater for us. And so that should 
cause each and every one of you to groan inside as we long for that thing that we do not yet have. And that is glorified fellowship with God forever. And the more you come to realize this, the less you will cling to this world. Because you will see, it will become more clear to you who you shall be. And you want that. You want to be in heavenly conversation with Christ and with Moses and Elijah. You want to behold more of the glory of God in which you only see now imperfectly. And yet for everyone here, this is also a warning to you. None of us are fit to see the glory of God. Our minds are hindered by the flesh and they are corrupted by sin. Yet if you want to see the glory of God in part now and fully in heaven, it will only happen through faith in Christ. Right? It is only in believing the Gospel that we are given the Spirit who provides for us new light which enables us now to see the glory of God even imperfectly now as we await those glorified bodies with our glorified eyes. Well, we will then have perfect sight of Christ. This is what the theologians call the, the beatific vision. Right? Where you will see Christ face to face as He is. I ask you, is this your heart's desire? Is this your heart's desire? If it is, then you should be able to echo what John says at the end of the book of Revelation. Right? When Jesus tells him, surely I am coming. And what does John respond? Lord Jesus, come quickly. This then takes us to our third and final point this morning, which is that Jesus was transfigured to confirm His message and to stir us up unto faithful obedience. So look with me, please, starting at verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out from the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So here in verse 7, we see the, the Father speaks from the cloud to James and John and Peter. And he, he kind of puts his stamp upon Jesus once again, just like he did at Jesus' baptism, right? Where he said, this is my beloved Son. Now in Matthew's parallel account of our text today, Matthew adds that he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so here the Father confirms to the saints that this is the eternal Son of God. He also, in this encounter, affirms His love for His Son, the only begotten Son of the Father. And likewise, He also, in saying that this is whom I am well pleased, is saying, I am pleased with My Son because He is doing everything perfectly. He is executing His office as mediator to precision. He's saying everything that My Son says and does is right. And because Jesus does the will of God, because He reveals the will of the Father to us, because He reveals the Father to us, the Father tells Peter, James, and John, hear Him. Listen to Him. Because the One whom I have sent forth comes and brings to you the very words of God. And this message given to the apostles is the same message to you and I that the Father gives today. It is hear Him. Listen to My Son because this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the call to all of us today. Brothers and sisters, we must know this. Christ is our great Teacher. And Christ, no less today than He was on that mountaintop, speaks to us. 
And we are called to listen and believe and trust and obey. And you might say, well, how can, how can Christ's voice be the same then as it is today when they had Christ standing in front of them? But what you must realize is that we have the Spirit of Christ. Right? And so Christ is no less with us today. And so when Christ's voice rings out from the church, when the Word of God is proclaimed, this is why, brothers and sisters, you commit spiritual suicide. Right when you neglect the church. Because right? what you're saying is, I neglect the voice of Christ. Right? It's not the, you don't come to hear a minister. It's not because I have a sultry voice that you come. Or you come to hear the voice of Christ spoken to your hearts. But when you neglect to come, you are neglecting and you are rejecting Christ. You're saying, no thank you, I don't need to hear your voice today. I guess i got something better to do. Jesus affirms this when he says in Luke 10:16, "The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me." You see the risen Lord speaks to you today as the scriptures are proclaimed. And so we are told to listen to his voice, and when you listen to his voice, you are blessed because these are words of eternal life. You see the glory of God was shown but for a moment here. Because soon they come down off the mountaintop But this was done for a purpose. This was done for a purpose. The Lord used this moment to move the apostles' faith beyond sight so that they would now walk by faith, listening to the Son. This was done in order so that when Jesus says in verse 9, tell no one what you have seen until the Son of Man is risen, that they would listen and obey. This was done so that in after verse 10, when they, they questioned what rising from the dead meant and asked Jesus, why do the scribes say Elijah must come? That they would listen to what he had to say. That they would hear what he had to say. That their minds would move from off of earth into heavenly realities. Because Jesus responds in verse 12 with this. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. You see, the apostles believed that the the resurrection was a sign of the end of the world. And so they said, well, how can it be the end of the world right now? You know, Elijah hasn't come. Or they say, well, you know, even so, if if it is the end of the world, why does the Son of Man have to, what does it mean that he has to die and and rise from the dead again? Right? Part of their misunderstanding is what they were taught about Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. When they were, to, when we read, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so Jesus is explaining now for a second time, right, that Elijah has already come, but he has come in the person of the John the Baptist. Right? John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And yet they could not understand this. Just like they cannot understand right now what it means for Jesus to rise from the dead. You see, the problem is is that they are interpreting the Scripture through the lens of their own tradition and not interpreting the Scripture in how they are meant to be interpreted and how Christ interprets them. I think all of us are probably guilty of doing that at times, aren't we? 
But you see, it was this misapplication of Scripture, which was the reason that they failed to see that John came in the spirit of Elijah. And so what did they do? They mistreated him and put him to death. And now Jesus says, the same is going to happen to me. I must be rejected. right? I must be treated with contempt. Yet he tells them to not say anything until he has risen from the dead. And why does he say this? Because it's only after he has risen from the grave that they finally are going to get what he's been saying. In the resurrection, Jesus will prove to them once and for all everything he said is true. It is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ now they will come to understand it's not the end of the world, but it's the beginning of a new world where salvation is going to come to Jew and Greek alike. Salvation will be brought to every tribe, tongue, and nation in the power of the resurrected Christ. This is the same message for all of us here today. This this proof of the resurrection is recorded for you and I. Jesus went and showed Himself to over 500 people in order to give the church boldness and confidence in the world. right? The death and resurrection of Christ reveals to us that this, and the Scriptures reveal to us that this was a part of the divine plan of God in order to comfort the church that we might know that and see that everything that God predicts, everything He says will come to pass, surely will come to pass, just like our salvation, just like our glorification. Right? And knowing this, Jesus now expects us to faithfully obey. Right? To suffer the reproaches of this world. To be persecuted for His sake. To possibly die. Knowing that the glory of heaven awaits you and I. And yet, not only is this transfiguration given as a pledge to these three men, but it's given as a pledge to the entire church. That Christ will again return in glory. This is why Peter recounts what he saw. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. This is what Peter says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is My Son in whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard the voice born for heaven, for we were with Him on that mountain. You see, uh, Peter is recounting this event for saints of all time in order to, to comfort us, to tell us what I am telling you is not a myth. This is, this is real. The Gospel is real. It is true. We were there. We bear witness to seeing the glory of Christ and hearing the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's saying, listen to us, we who preach Christ and obey. Remember, after Jesus died, what happened? All of the saints ran and hid, didn't they? They ran and hid out of fear. They didn't want to be anywhere in sight. It wasn't until Jesus is resurrected and appears to them, all of a sudden, their fear is cast aside and they boldly go forth proclaiming the Gospel ready to die. And knowing this, right? Knowing that this is a reality. This is a historical event that took place understanding the importance of your eternal soul, your need to trust and believe in Christ, I ask you as we close today, listen to the voice of the Lord. Do not put off placing your faith and trust in Christ. Do not harden yourselves to the message today. And for all of you who are believing, I say this, take comfort, knowing that whatever light 
momentary affliction we might suffer now, Jesus is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory which is beyond comparison that awaits for you and I. And we can know that we will be resurrected even if we die prior to the Lord's return. And we can know this for certain because Jesus has risen from the grave. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for this word that you have given to your people. What a great and glorious message it is that Christ has risen from the grave, that He has died in our stead, that He has conquered and overcome death. And all who have faith in Christ likewise are conquerors of sin, death, and the devil. And we likewise can look forward to, in hopeful anticipation, the resurrection of our own bodies where we will be with You forever and see our Lord face to face in heaven. Father, we are so thankful for this. We give You thanks and praise. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.